if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and we'll turn to James chapter 2. If you have a Bible from the back table there that you're borrowing or if you need to keep it, feel free. Um, you can go to James 2, which is on page 1114 if you have trouble finding it. Uh, but it's there at the end of your Bible. James chapter 2, and we will be in verses 8 through 13 this morning. Uh, I was thinking that the, the older I get and the longer I am a father, uh, the more I find myself saying and doing things that are just like my own father, uh, I find words in my mouth and I say, oh, it's something my dad would say, or I laugh at things and it's things that my dad would laugh at, or I tell jokes and they're things that my dad would say and it's it's just funny. And I find I even look more and more like him the older I get. And that's all true, of course, because I'm his son, because I'm, I'm his his child. Uh, and we all can see that in our in our earthly parents, maybe physically, maybe in other ways, we recognize that we see ourselves, um, we see our parents in ourselves. Um, and if we are Christians, then that translates as well. And the hope is that we would see our Father in ourselves. Um, in many ways, as we've been talking about growth and godliness, this is what we're longing for. This, this is simply what we are looking for, is that we would look more and more like our Heavenly Father. That the words that we say, the thoughts that we have, the way that we act would reflect Him. And as we look at our passage today, we find that one of the key characteristics, one of the key character traits of the Father that we want to see in our lives is love. John tells us that God is love. And if we are His children then we are going to be marked by a unique and undeniable love for others. We're going to, I titled the message, the, the Uniqueness of Christian Love, and we're going to kind of get into that. I told Murray it's not a perfect title, but it'll do and hopefully get us on the right track. Um, but let, let me remind us of what we looked at last week, because James is picking up on this theme of a partiality that we did talk about. And so... I want us to kind of see where he was, and, and it'll help lead us into where he's at with verses 8 through 13. So we saw in verse 1 of chapter 2 that the command is to show no partiality as God's people. We said that partiality is to make distinctions between people based on outward appearances, and it's to judge others with, with evil thoughts, whether those thoughts be rooted in a desire for personal gain, so we want to be friends with the rich because maybe we'll get something from them, or evil thoughts of, of the avoidance of personal pain. I don't want to be friends with the poor because they're going to ask me for things, and that's, that's difficult. Those are evil thoughts that show partiality, and we don't want to do that. To, to act with partiality, we also said it ignores the realities of the kingdom, which say that, that, in fact, those who are poor and those who are despised and rejected by the world are often those that are rich in faith. And that those who are rich in worldly goods are the ones who are often opposed to our faith in Christ. So to, to show partiality doesn't understand the, the realities of the new kingdom. And also to show partiality denies glory and honor to the one person who deserves it, which is God. God who is, as we sang, Lord Most High. He is the Lord of glory. And if we would not show partiality as, as James 
commands us to, then, then we need to be transformed by the realities of, of the new kingdom, by the kingdom of God that we are part of through faith in Christ, by this new family where we're to reflect our Father who shows no partiality. Uh, part of being members of, of God's kingdom is found in, in serving God as king. God is our king, and he is the one that we listen to. We submit to him joyfully, and we do what he says. And James is going to help us consider that, that what he is telling us to do is to, to obey the law of love. Love for one another. If we are his children, that's what we, are, we will do. If we are God's children, we will be marked by love for others. So let's summarize it like this. James tells us in this passage then that the law of love guards us from partiality and it marks us as God's children. We're thinking about the law of love, of love for others. And this law, the law of love, guards us from partiality, which is what we're not to show, and marks us as God's children. One more time, the big idea, the law of love, love guards us from partiality and marks us as God's children. So I think no matter where we are at in our walk of faith, love for others is something that we continually need to be growing in. And my hope this morning is that God's word would convict us and instruct us in what that looks like. So I want to read James chapter 2, beginning in verse 8 through verse 13. So follow with me if you have your Bibles open. James writes, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak, and so act, as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I will confess that I sent a text to my wife on Friday that said, Ah! This passage is so hard. <laughs> so I invite you to engage with me. I don't. I think it seems simple on the surface, but there's a lot packed into this. So hopefully it doesn't get too warm in here and we start getting drowsy because I think we're going to really need to engage. So let me just invite you to engage your brains with this text this morning because I think it can be powerful if we would. So again, the law of love guards us from partiality and marks us as God's children. Go back to the Old Testament in your minds for a minute and think about when God formed the children of Israel. One of the key ways that he does it is when he redeems them from slavery and he purchases them as his people and sets them apart by giving them the law at Mount Sinai. So even further back in Genesis 12, God calls a man named Abraham, Abram at the time, and he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you a land and all nations are going to be blessed in and through you. And we see through the book of Genesis that that is slowly happening, very slowly happening through barrenness and God's miraculous ways. And he brings them to the place where they are beginning to grow, but then they land in Egypt at the beginning of the book of Exodus. And God's people are slaves in a foreign land. They're increasing in number, but they're under the thumb of this evil ruler, the Pharaoh of Egypt. 
So God, we know the story, sends the plagues to release them. And the last one, the tenth plague, is the plague of the firstborn. And so he, he, he is going to kill all of the firstborn through the angel of death, but he gives the children of Israel this means of of redemption, this means of being saved from the angel of death. And it's if they would take the blood of a lamb and put it on the doorposts of their home, then the angel of death will pass over. And this is what happens for the children of Israel. God spares all the firstborn of the children of Israel. And after this plague, the Israelites are sent away. They are, in, in a sense, thrown out by Pharaoh and the other Egyptians. Go away before you destroy all the land. One more amazing picture of salvation as they cross through the Red Sea. And then the remainder of the book of Exodus after you get through all the action, it feels like, is that the children of Israel land at the foot of Mount Sinai and God starts to give them laws. Things about what they should eat and what they should wear and how they should worship and the rules for the tabernacle itself. And the purpose of all these things is that God is making them different and distinct from all nations. Having redeemed them out of slavery in Egypt, he is now making them the people of God. He has increased them in number, and now he is setting them apart as his people. And he does it by giving them the law that they are to obey. Why do I bring that up? Because this is not only true for the Israelites, but this is true for us as new covenant people of God. That what God does is he redeems us. He buys us. He purchases us. And he does it in much the same way. He does it by the blood of the lamb, not the blood of many lambs, but the blood of one lamb. He supernaturally frees us from slavery to Satan and sin and death, and he does it through the blood of the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He redeems us and makes us his own through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. And then having saved us, he calls us to be his distinct people. And what he does is he gives us a law that we are to live according to his law. And what James calls that law here is the law of liberty or the royal law. Now this law is, is not the same as the law that was given in Mount Sinai. And, and trying to hash through that was much of the struggle of the early church. How does the Old Testament law relate to the early church? The law given at Sinai was good, but it was also just this shadow of what was to come in Christ. And in many ways, the, in, in, and the law is fulfilled in Christ, and Christ sheds this new light on what the law is. In fact, it seems to be that's what Jesus does right at the beginning of his ministry in Matthew chapter 5 through 7 with the Sermon on the Mount. As Jesus comes, and he's come to redeem, but he's also come to sit on a mountain and to give a new law. It's the law of the new kingdom. And the Sermon on the Mount spells out the way that we as God's new covenant people are to live. It's, it's a new law, but it's also just a deeper understanding of that original law. It kind of dips behind the surface and, and shows us that, that the law was not about the externals, was it, but is it about, it's about the heart. And this is the law of the, of the new kingdom. It's a law that gets to our, our desires and our motives. We've said that James sort of forms a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. And I think what James does here then is he takes the Sermon on the Mount, as it were, and he summarizes it with this one command, this law of the new kingdom. And he quotes it here. He says, if you really want to fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. So 
as we think about this idea that the law guards us from partiality and marks us as God's children, here's the first thought that I want us to think about. And we're going to see this in, in verse 8 and also in verses 10 and 11. So we're kind of going a little out of order. But here's the first thought. Love fulfills the law, and a, fulfill, a failure to love breaks it. Love, specifically love of neighbor, fulfills the law, and a failure to love breaks it. So James begins in verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law, he talks about this royal law, and the royal law is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That phrase royal law, there's a lot of different ways to think about it, but it may be that what he's saying is that this is the law of the new covenant people of God. And the new covenant people of God, this is your command. If we are to live with God as king, then the command is to love your neighbor as yourself. As those redeemed by God, called out by him, our law is to love our neighbor as ourselves. He says it's a command according to the scriptures. So this is not the first time that we see this command. The first time that we see this command is in, a, is in an unlikely place. It's in the book of Leviticus. Right in the middle of the giving of the law, in Leviticus 19, we see some various commands. And if you go back this afternoon, you can look at Leviticus 19, beginning in verse 9, and you're going to find uh, some unique commands. And they have to do with neighbors. And it says that we're, we're, he calls the Israelites to, to leave the grain in their field on the edges for the poor. Uh, that they're not to steal that they're not to deal falsely, that they're not to oppress and rob others, they're not to harm those that are deaf, those that are blind, they're not to slander others. And even, thinking about this context, there's a law there in Leviticus 9 to not show partiality to the rich or to the poor. And then he ends that section of laws by saying, here's the command, love your neighbor as you love yourself. So almost right in the middle of the book of Leviticus, almost right in the middle of, of the law of Genesis through Deuteronomy, we find this command, love your neighbor as yourself. And we fast forward to the New Testament, and we find Jesus, as he's teaching, he summarizes the law when he's speaking to the rich young ruler by saying that the law hinges on, on these, these two commandments, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. It's been said that, that if you think about the Ten Commandments, that that first command, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, that's the summary of the first four commands of the Ten Commandments. And then to love your neighbor as yourself, that's the summary of those final six commands of the Ten Commandments. But in this context, James zeroes in on this command to love our neighbor as ourself. I think there may be a reason why he doesn't bring up the, the love Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Part of it, I, the reason I think, comes from this passage in First John. This is what John writes in First John four, twenty and twenty one. He says, "If anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him: Whoever loves God must also love his brother." The conclusion then is that if we love our neighbor in the radical, impartial way that James is calling us to, then that's a sure sign that we've been changed by God and we truly love him as king as well. So, says James, if we fail to love our neighbor, we are showing partiality. We are convicted by the law as a transgressor. We are law breakers if we do not love our neighbor. He expands this in verses 10 through uh, 10 and 11. 
Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do commit, do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. He says if you keep the whole law but you fail in one point, you've broken it all, you are accountable for all of it. So the law is like a piece of glass. The biggest piece of glass I can think of is the piece of glass on my car windshield. And I'm always amazed at how small of a, a crack, how small of a nick in that windshield means I have to replace the entire thing. Because one crack means that the whole thing is broken. Have you had this experience? I say, you're going to take that whole piece of glass and put a brand new on because of this small crack? Yes, because it's going to spread and it's going to break everything else. And that's how the law is. One sin breaks it all. One reason that is, is because the unity of the law is tied up in the character of God. The law is a reflection of who God is. And, and you can't break one part of it and still have a correct picture of who God is. To rep, misrepresent one affects the other. It's like almost like a Rubik's Cube, where if you get part of it together, and or if you turn part of it, it changes everything else, right? You, that's the difficulty of a Rubik's Cube. If you have it perfect and you twist one part, it changes everything. And so too with the law. It, it, if, if we are... If we fail, if we improperly use the law, if we, if we break the law, then we are not reflecting God's character rightly in the world as his image bearers. Another way, so part of the reason that failing in one breaks the whole law is because it, it reflects God's character, and to mess up one part is to, to do damage to the whole character of God. But another way to think about it is that, that breaking the whole law is... Because when we disobey one law, we are when we dis, disobey one of the many laws, we are in fact disobeying the one main law, which is to love our neighbor as ourselves. Let me try to explain that. The law is summarized in this command to love our neighbor as ourselves. So if that's true, then to break any other law, any of the laws, is to not show love for neighbor. James does this with some examples. He talks about adultery and murder, which seem like total opposites. They, they deal with totally different spheres of life. He says, well, if you break this one, it's like you've broken all of them. What's the point? Because he's saying, let's say that you do not commit adultery. In doing that, you are loving your neighbor as yourself. But let's say that you murder someone. In murdering, you are not loving your neighbor as yourself. So you have kept the law by loving your neighbor as yourself, by not committing adultery, but you have broken the law by killing someone, and therefore you have not loved your neighbor as yourself. You have broken the law because it is it's one whole. It's the love of neighbor. We said that the, the, the law then shows us that. And the law, because of that, breaks us. It convicts us as, as lawbreakers. It shows us that we cannot keep the law. We need help outside of it. And yet it also is this new way that we are called to live. It reveals our sin, but it also shows us the path that we are to go on. I was listening to Alistair Begg yesterday, and he described it like this. I found it so helpful. He said, imagine a thief comes into church, and he sees somewhere posted that the Ten Commandments, and he sees one stands out to him. Of course, we know which one stands out to the thief. Thou shalt not steal. Don't steal. And he thinks about how just the day before he had stolen someone's wallet. 
And so he sort of sinks in his seat, and he gets ready to try to sneak out the back. But then the pastor, who is hopefully a faithful pastor, stands up and he proclaims the truth about Jesus. He proclaims the, the truth that if, if, if this man will repent of sin and believe in Christ, that he will be forgiven of all of his sin. He hears this message of hope, and that man repents, not just of his sin of stealing, but of, but of all of his sins, and he finds forgiveness in Christ. So he came in, he sees the law, and what's the law do? Convicts him as a transgressor of the law. And the gospel message in Christ reveals that Jesus is his only hope. Imagine that man then comes back the next Sunday. He sees the same picture of the Ten Commandments, and on them he sees that same command, Thou shalt not steal. And it sticks out to him again. And it reminds him, yes, that's who I once was. But it also stands not just as condemnation, but as a promise. And this is what I had never thought about before. That the words don't focus, he doesn't focus just on the words, Thou shalt not steal. But he focuses on that word, shalt. Thou shalt not steal. And it's not a command, it's actually a promise to him. That if he's new in Christ, that becomes a, a not just the command not to do it, but the promise that you have been changed and you will not steal. Because you are a new creation in Christ. You have been changed. It convicts, but it also instructs and gives hope that this is what you will do. This is what we have in, in the law, that the law shows us that we have broken it, but it also shows us the way that we are to walk. James sort of says this in a negative way. He says, if, if we fail to love our neighbor at any point, we have failed to fulfill the law, and therefore we are accountable to all of it, and we are a transgressor of all of it. But let me remind you of the words that, that Trevor read from Romans 13. He's, Paul in Romans says this sort of in a positive way. He says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery again. He's bringing these up again. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in what word? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Here's that positive side that James hints at in verse 8 as well. If you fulfill the royal law, if I desire to fulfill the law, if I want to live as a child of the king, if I want to live as a citizen of the new kingdom, then all I need to do is love my neighbor as myself. How wonderfully simple. How unbelievably challenging. <laughs> if we look at these commandments again and we think about that, we can say that if I love my neighbor, I will not commit adultery. I, I won't do violence to my own marriage or to my neighbor's marriage because I love him or I love her. I, I won't get to the I, and I'll get to the heart of that command. I, I won't just look at adultery. Well, I don't commit adultery, therefore I'm okay. But I'll get to the heart as Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount, and I won't harbor lust in my heart. Love for neighbor keeps me from from sinful thoughts because I don't want to be treated that way, and I'm not to treat others that way. Love for neighbor gets beyond even the, the act of adultery. It gets right to, to lust itself. Love for neighbor kills the desire of lust. Love for neighbor kills the desire for the plight in our nation of, of pornography. 
Because that, uh, that objectifies another person, and that's not love for them. It's harm to my neighbor. It's not good for them. It fails to treat the other person as someone created in the image of God, to see them as someone that I love, as my neighbor. It distorts God's covenant of marriage. It distorts the gift of in- intimacy. It hates neighbor. What about murder? If I love my neighbor, <laughs> I am not going to murder them. <laughs> And where does Jesus go, though? But we won't harbor hate in our heart towards towards our, our, our neighbor either. We won't steal from our neighbor if we love them. And we also won't covet what belongs to them, because that creates division. That's not love for neighbor. I'm not going to wish ill for them, but I'm going to seek their good. Love for neighbor fulfills the law. Of course, love is complicated, isn't it? Those who love us may be the ones who point out our sinful and sinful sins and our shortcomings. Love for neighbor doesn't mean that I just tolerate everything that everyone else does. Sometimes that kind of love is not love. It's, ta- it's, it's hatred. That's the problem that we face so much in our world is that we look at social issues and we're told to, that love is, is tolerance and acceptance and celebration of a person's choice. But love actually won't allow us to do that. Because if we understand what true love is, Choices that result in, in, in racism or choices that result in immorality or choices that result in murder. These, these we have to oppose because we love others. We, we don't want them to go down the path of sin. We love them, and those attitudes and actions are wrong. They're not loving. Love can be confusing, but it's also very simplifying. To follow Christ is to love others. Isn't that a wonderful thing? That the faith that we hold to hangs on the command to love one another. That's unique. I, I think we need, we take that for granted. But that the core of what we believe is not destruction. The core of what we believe is not domination. The core of what we believe is not some sort of political agenda. What's the core of what we believe? To love our neighbor as ourselves. So I would challenge you to let God write and continue to write this law on our hearts. He's done it through the new commandment. And he continues to do it. This law to love my neighbor as myself. Or as Jesus said it, to do unto others as I would have them do unto me. And in every temptation we can consider, what would love for neighbor look like in this? How can I love my neighbor in this situation? I invite you, we did this at our dinner table. We kind of walked through that last half of the of the Ten Commandments um, and thought, how is this summarized in the command love your neighbor as yourself how can we think about the command to not commit adultery to not steal to not murder to not lie how are those summarized in the command love your neighbor as yourself I invite you to do that if we've been redeemed by God's love this is what we are called to we're called to love in this way love our neighbor as ourselves. Of course, when we hear that phrase, what do we do next? We do what the man who was given this command did. He said, and who is my neighbor? (laughs) Who am I supposed to love? You remember that? How does Jesus answer that question? He usually answers with a question, but this time he answers with a story. And it's the story of the Good Samaritan. And that story teaches, as you can read that this afternoon, another reading assignment. So you've got Leviticus, now you've got Luke 10. Uh, Luke 10, beginning in verse 25, Jesus shows us that my neighbor is anyone in need. My neighbor is anyone in need. And that story brings us back to the issue of partiality, back into James here. 
So love fulfills the law, and a failure to love breaks it. But James is also telling us this. Christian love is opposed to all partiality. Christian love is opposed to all partiality. This ties back to that command in verse 1, show no partiality. And we find in verses 8 and 9 that that the opposite of partiality is to love your neighbor as yourself. If you look at that, they kind of play off each other. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. To love our neighbor as ourself is to do well and to fulfill the royal law. To show partiality is to sin and therefore be convicted by the law as a transgressor. This gets to the uniqueness of Christian love. Love in our culture is primarily thought about in emotional terms. And the love that we most typically talk about and express is rooted in some kind of personal preference. It's probably not outright partiality, but we most naturally love the people who are like us. That's who we love, and that's who everyone loves. I read a biography of of Soren Kierkegaard, and it summarized some of his works. And in one of them, he talks about this, and he says that this kind of love is called passionate preference. That's the love that we naturally go to, passionate preference. And he says that this is a love of like for like. I love my wife for many reasons. And my love for her, I believe, is true and it's deep, but it's also founded in some degree on my preference for her. I find her attractive, I like who she is, and I probably like her most in the ways that she is most like me. (laughs) My friends are my friends most often because I like them and because they're like me. That's true for all of us. We can admit it. (laughs) But Christian love goes beyond passionate preference. It goes beyond the, the cliques of your high school, right, where everyone just hangs out with who's like them. And it gets into, again, Kierkegaard's word, disinterested love. Not uninterested, but disinterested. This is agape love that we talk about. It's a love that goes beyond partiality, beyond preference. And it loves no matter what the person is like. Commentator Motyer says this, The essence of partiality is to select the recipients of our care on some ground other than that they are in need. We select who we like, the recipients of our care and love, on the ground, on ground, on some ground other than that they are in need. True love for neighbor then is the opposite of partiality. Who is my neighbor? It's anyone and everyone that I come across, especially people who are in need. That's my neighbor. Walk out the door. The first person you meet, that's your neighbor especially if they are in need, especially if they're in need of love. And aren't we all in need of love? If that sounds difficult, loving your neighbor as yourself, let me make it even harder. Actually, let me let Jesus make it even harder. Because in the Sermon on the Mount, this is what he says. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, you know what's coming? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, 
what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Passionate preference. That's what everyone does. Everyone loves the people that are like them. What about your enemies? Who's your neighbor? Enemies are our neighbors. What about the people who oppose us? What about the people who use us? We love them. And in so doing, we reflect our Father. Maybe you think, I don't really have any enemies. <laughs> we all have people that are opposed to us. Even the people that we love can become people that are opposed to us. What do I do when my wife frustrates my personal pursuit of the kingdom of me? <laughs> do I love her? What do I do when my children come up against all my plans? What do I do when my coworkers or my neighbors or my friends frustrate me and hurt me? Jesus says that Christian love shows no partiality and it also shows no preference. It loves those who are unlovely in the eyes of the world and it loves those who are unloving to us. It's not always what we want to do. Love doesn't always have to flow from deep emotion, I don't think. Not this kind of love. It's not wrong to say that you have a duty to love your neighbor. That's not legalism. It's just simply an understanding that love is a commitment and emotions are not always necessary for me to love my neighbor. Sometimes we love others because it's the right thing to do. And as followers of Jesus, we want to do what is right. Not to earn God's favor, but because it's right and it honors God. My love for my wife is not finally and fully rooted in emotion. It's rooted in a covenant that I made with her. For richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, it's not rooted on circumstance and it's not rooted on how I feel. It's rooted on a promise that I made. Members of Grace Fellowship Church, your love for one another is not rooted on whether or not you like the people that are here. We actually have a covenant that we made with one another, that we love each other, and it doesn't have to do with whether or not we prefer someone. As those who are called out by God to be His unique people, living by His rule, our love is rooted in the covenant that we have made with God. Love for enemies is what people who are changed by the love of God do, because that's what God has done. Even to His enemies. That text says He gives rain to everybody. He gives so much more than rain, doesn't he? He gives his son to die for his enemies. And that's what we are to model. Well, then John 13 takes us even deeper. Because we're not only to love our neighbors as ourselves, and we're not only to love our enemies as ourselves, but we are not we, we are to love our enemies and our neighbors as Christ has loved us. Boy, that gets even harder, doesn't it? John 13, the new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. I read that in John 15 at the beginning of the service too. Now there is a unique love there that's amongst the brothers and sisters who are in Christ. But there is also the call to love even our enemies and to love our neighbor as Christ has loved us. This unique love, a sacrificial love. We are to love as Christ has loved us. Not simply 
as we love others, but to, we're not just supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves, but we are also called to lay down our lives for others, as Christ has done for the glory of the Father. And in light of all of this, James writes in verse 12, he says, In light of all this, so, therefore, speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I think these verses are hard. <laughs> I'm going to do my best. I think they're expanded in the, what we're going to look at next, so my hope is that I can work it out a little bit this next week, studying these following verses. But we are to speak and act as people who will be judged by this law of liberty, by the royal law to love our neighbor as ourselves. We are to live as those who have been freed to love with the love of Christ. We live as those who have received mercy through God in Christ. And understanding the depth of that love causes us to show mercy to others. So verse 13 says that if we don't show mercy to others, then mercy will not be shown to us. Again, some words from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7. Judge not that you not be judged. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Or the beatitude, blessed are the merciful, because they will be shown mercy. As we think about the judgment of God on our sin, we could say that that by showing mercy, we secure God's mercy. We think about the judgment that's coming, so we want to show mercy so that we will be shown mercy by God. If we are gracious and merciful to others, then God will be gracious and merciful to us, yes and no. Here's what, uh, again, Motyer says on this. It's not that our mercy has purchasing power, that it purchases salvation, but that it has evidential value. Neither Jesus nor James would see our merciful deeds as meritorious acts by which we make ourselves worthy of God's mercy. If we could make ourselves worthy, we would not need mercy. That's a simple but deep thought, isn't it? And both teach that if we are not merciful we can neither credibly seek nor effectively receive the mercy he offers. In other words, those who have been changed by mercy show mercy. And that stands as the evidence that we have truly been changed and will receive mercy on Judgment Day. I love that Jesus and James have no issue saying that we will be judged on the last day by the way that we treat others. The the message of the sheep and the goats is... What's the difference between the two? It's how they treated people. Did they love others? Again, that's not an earning of salvation, but but the fruit of salvation is so closely tied to the root. It's faith, but faith shows up, and it shows up in love for neighbor. If we fail to love that may condemn us as people who have never been changed by God's mercy. If we show no mercy, we'll look like the the man that Jesus talked about. You remember that guy? Forgiven of the huge debt. And what's he do? He goes out and grabs the guy by the collar and says, give me what you owe me. And it's such a minuscule amount. The faith, the, the love of God did not abide in that man. And if that's how we act, if we have been shown so much mercy, and we show no mercy to anyone else, How does the love of God abide in us? 
I think these words also are true in our relationships with others. If we show no mercy to others, then they will show no mercy to us. If we hold everyone to some high and strict measure and never show mercy, if we never show love and mercy to our neighbor, then when we fail, are they going to show us any mercy? Don't count on it. (laughs) Jesus perfectly models love for neighbor. He shows us what this looks like. That's where I want to get to eventually here. But but we can we can rejoice in some sense today that, that mercy triumphs over judgment. That the, the mercy of God in Christ justifies us, makes us right, so that by faith we don't receive the judgment we deserve, but we are instead welcomed as, as children of God. And as God's children, we want to reflect Him. We want to show love to others. But we know that, that God has done this fully. So Jesus fulfills the law. But we also know that we are lawbreakers, and because of that we need Jesus who does this perfectly. He loves all people, shows no partiality, never transgresses the law, and in him we can be found righteous. We know that Jesus perfectly models love for neighbor, love for enemy, and he dies for his enemy. He lays down his life for them. And that's what we are called to do. As God's children, we want to reflect him through our love for others. Maybe on Father's Day, I'll just give a special call to fathers. We can all hear this, but as fathers, let's be those who reflect our Heavenly Father to our children. That they would look at us and they would see us as men who love others sacrificially and unconditionally. That it would be something that begins in our homes. That our children see us as as men who love our wives and who love our children, who are committed to that. That we place their needs above our own, our, their desires above our own. That we're willing to lay down our lives for our children. And that we would also be those that judge no one. What a great legacy that our children would see us as, as men who show no partiality. Who lay down our lives for our friends, for our enemies, for our, the outcasts in society, for anyone. Of course, may that be true for all of us who hold to faith in Christ. That partiality would be so far from us. And that love for neighbor would, would cause the world to look at us and see who God truly is. That we would reflect Him well. That He is the loving Father who loves us so much that He sent His Son to pursue us. To change us. And to make us people who love our neighbor as ourselves. Who love our enemies as ourselves and who even would love our neighbors and our enemies and anyone with the love that Christ has loved us with. And we would lay down our lives for his glory.